0: The reality is, you know, before the arsonist arrest, I did not know much about the profiling of arsonists, except what we generally knew. This person may have been lonely, depressed, and felt alienated from people. And that fire setting may be a way to assert some form of power out there in the world. And that is really
1: the extent of what I knew. This is Dave Jameson, a one-time reporter for the Washington City paper in Washington, D.C. Back in 2003, when he was a budding journalist, Jameson stumbled onto a story, a series of fires that would be linked to one of the most prolific and bizarre arsonists in history.
0: I could not really imagine, and I didn't fathom what was actually motivating him, which I later found out.
1: Jameson was just an intern working for another reporter who wanted to cover the many fires that were happening around D.C. It was one of my
0: first reporting gigs, and I was working for a guy named Eric Wemple, who had this idea to just cover fires that were happening around the city. Kind of an oblique way to write about poverty, because most of the fires tended to happen
1: in, in poorer neighborhoods. And that summer, they heard about a series of strange arson fires that had perplexed authorities.
0: This arsonist was setting their fires in occupied buildings in the middle of the night. They always seemed to be residential houses. There would be a device placed at a doorway to the house and this was a jug of some kind and it would be filled with gasoline. There would be some sort of wick put in it to light It was really just the vapors at the top of the jug that would burn because gasoline itself doesn't burn, the vapors do. That would slowly burn until the jug itself was compromised enough that the top and the sides gave way. And then the gasoline would pour across the front porch near the doorway and the fire would spread. And a lot of times, somebody inside that house would wake up to the front of their house burning. The fact that this jug was usually placed at an entrance suggested that the arsonist probably wanted to terrorize people. I spent a few weeks driving around talking to the victims of these fires. There was really nothing obvious connecting them. They were in different neighborhoods, different kinds of houses. These people didn't know one another. It all seemed so random. The victims found it particularly unnerving because they had no idea why they were targeted. Um, They didn't know if this person would come back. People were frightened. The fires were happening frequently. As this kind of unfolded, it became a a huge story in 2003. It was kind of reminiscent of the DC sniper case in that there was somebody at large terrorizing people and, and people just didn't know why. The Lou Edna Jones fire was a really disturbing development. It was set like a lot of the other fires were set. It was a jug, a device set at the front door, and it created a fire that got out of hand. There was a bunch of people in the house, and it was elderly Lou Edna Jones who, who never made it out. You know, She was found to be asphyxiated by the smoke. When investigators were looking into it, because they knew somebody died, they were really hoping that the fire was accidental and that it was not coming from their person. You're hoping that this arsonist was not willing to kill somebody and then continue setting fires. What they found was that not only had he set that fire, he would set another fire the same night, about two and a half miles away, what investigators called lighting doubles. This was someone who, they figured, probably did not quickly graduate to murder. If he was willing to see somebody die and then continue setting more, these fires had probably been going on for a long time. As one investigator told me, it shows that there's nothing stopping it.
1: I'm Carrie Antholis, and this is Firebug. Most serial arsonists have some sense of inadequacy or powerlessness. The guy that just does it and he would never, never admit that he set that fire. I wanted this person to know the damage that they did. You know, why would you do this to all these people? Very few serious fire setters uh, have ever been captured, let alone shared their story.
0: I think it's important to analyze these people and understand they
1: hurt people all the way along. Epilogue 2, The D.C. Arsonist. In the summer of 2003... An arsonist was running wild in the streets of Washington, D.C., burning down homes with people inside of them. He had already killed one person that authorities knew about, and they were growing desperate to catch him. Investigators
0: did do a psychological profile of the arsonist, and what they assumed was that he was lonely, he probably had a lot of anxiety, and probably felt like a failure. They wondered. You know, if this person could be law enforcement or could even be a firefighter, there was really no certainty as to what type of person this was.
1: But in September of 2003, investigators finally got a break in the case. The arsonist
0: had this really simple device to set the fires, and it proved to be you know, really effective for their, their purposes. But there was kind of a built-in flaw with it in that he was leaving something behind at every crime scene. The arsonist slipped up big time one night when he went to set a fire on Anacostia Avenue, northeast. Three guys came home from a night of partying and they saw a guy they didn't know sitting on their front porch who kind of awkwardly made his way off as they approached and he had left behind a bag that had a gallon jug that was filled with gasoline. The ATF took that bag and they ran DNA tests on it and they found a strand of hair that they were able to pull DNA from. And later at another fire, they were able to pull a DNA sample off of the remnants of a jug and were able to tie that to their other sample. They realized that they had the DNA of their arsonist. They didn't have a name or much else to go on, but it was a very exciting break. Someone at the task force who was kind of being a joker put up a wanted poster. There was no name and no picture, but there was just a double helix. And uh, instead of someone's name, there was a line of genetic code. They were excited about this break, but they still did not know who their person was. In December 2004, investigators found a sort of strange clue at one of the fire scenes, a random Marine Corps cap and dress pants that was about a block away from this house fire out in Arlington. They were able to run DNA tests on it and found that DNA from the pants matched DNA from other fire scenes.
1: So, DC investigators asked Navy Criminal Investigative Services for help in figuring out just whose uniform they had found.
0: Obviously, they were wondering if this person was a Marine. And so, investigators started talking to folks at NCIS. And NCIS wouldn't offer DNA of their... Marines, but they did offer up some leads on really old barracks fires that went back quite a ways. Somebody had been setting cars ablaze near the Marine facilities. In one case, a car was captured
1: on video, leaving the scene of a fire. Also captured was that car's license plate.
0: That was traced back to a guy who happened to live near one of those convenience stores where the bags were coming from that kept turning up at these fire scenes. That guy's name was Thomas Sweat.
1: In Washington, federal authorities announced the arrest of a suspect in a string of fires set in and around the nation's capital over the past two years, the serial arson suspect Thomas Sweat. Federal agents say they matched the suspect to DNA evidence at one fire scene. Thomas Sweat
0: was arrested on April 27, 2005, leaving a work meeting. He'd worked at a, a KFC
1: location. Sweat may be responsible for more than 40 fires, including one that killed an elderly woman.
0: He confessed to the fires pretty quickly, uh, same day, and so Investigators were able to say publicly that they had their man. The investigators spent four days riding around with him where he cataloged hundreds of fires that he had set in great detail. I think the investigators were blown away by how forthcoming he was and his recollection of all these fires. In the whole region, there was a great sense of relief that this person had been caught and there was a sense of resolution to this huge manhunt and really frightening episode. He was convicted, would be serving double life sentence. He went off to prison, and the story kind of quickly moved off of the front pages. But we still really did not know why this guy had done what he'd done. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. I had been writing a lot about crime, and I would always make a point of reaching out to people who were convicted who I thought might have interesting stories.
1: Dave Jamison was a budding reporter for the Washington City paper when he reported on a strange series of arsons in the D.C. area. The arsonist, Thomas Sweat, was arrested in 2005.
0: Reporters rush out to find out what they can, and there was just so little to know about this guy. But the people who knew him just said kind of the typical things you hear when someone like this is arrested, that, you know, that he was a nice guy maybe a bit of a a loner.
1: But that wasn't enough for Jameson. He wanted to know more about Thomas Sweat. You know, people,
0: especially when the dust has settled, they kind of want to explain their side of the story. Tom was sent to the federal prison in Terre Haute, which is a famous facility. It's where, where Timothy McVeigh was put to death. And I just wrote him a simple letter saying who I was, what I do, and I said that I'd reported on a lot of his fires as they were unfolding, and that I really liked writing about fires, and I think that interested him. So he wrote me back a note.
1: The following are excerpts from Thomas Sweat's letters to Jameson.
2: Dave, I was pleased to get your letter and hope this could be the beginning of something good. Inmate Tom, number 38792037.
0: After our initial introductions, we started trading more letters. We would talk about his life and his work. I wanted to know what his daily life was like, where he lived.
2: I felt like that was my world. Not a lot of money in the neighborhood, but everybody happy go lucky, if you know what I mean. But that was the good part of Tom that people saw and only knew when darkness fell. It was the other person living inside of me.
0: Tom had been setting fires going back way before this manhunt started, at least to the early 1980s. And it was that far back that he started to understand that he was like showing two faces to the world. One was this low wage working man who worked as a fry cook.
2: The sad news is that KFC contributed to how my life ended. KFC was very stressful, and I had little time for anything else.
0: Worked very hard, but had a hard time getting ahead and felt like a bit of a failure.
2: People always, including family, said you work at a chicken joint. That ain't no real job. And it used to hurt my feelings because it required so much of my time.
0: But then there was this other guy who was lonely and violent and who took over once he clocked out of his job.
2: When coming and leaving the restaurant, I put on a mask to hide the other person, which took over after closing."
0: And this was a person who lived this separate life at night, going out, setting fires, and terrorizing people. He sort of could not reconcile these two sides of himself and felt that tension for years and years to the point where I know it exhausted him by the end of this and that he was ready for it to be over.
2: I still believe in my mind that the Lord God Almighty brought them, the ATF people, to me, because it was time for all this to stop. 30 years of fires. It was like, come get me. I'm tired. Jail can't be any worse than the life I've had then, and believe it or not, life is pretty much the same. It's just I'm not free to go wherever I want to. Okay, my thoughts are running wild again, so I'll stop here.
0: I would ask him about his childhood, then he would share with me things about how different he felt as a kid.
2: As a child growing up, I never did the normal thing like learning how to ride a bike, play sports, do boyish things. Instead, I wanted to play house out in the woods making straw houses, pretending to be the lady next door.
0: He told me that he always felt different and that he didn't particularly feel loved.
2: Never felt loved by family. And even now, I say I love them, but it's very hard to feel in my heart. Even during visits, they pretend. It's all the expression on their faces that tells me so.
0: You know, I came to understand that all of these things he was telling me were the explanation of ultimately why he did what he did as an adult.
2: Why did I set the fires when I set them? There were different reasons for most of the fires. It could be because of feeling the need to have power about something or someone. I don't want you driving that car so the fire becomes a weapon to destroy it. Or in case of some house fires, I might like a particular style of a house and wish one day to own it, but it's only a dream. Fire is a tool to destroy, and some house fires also become my fantasy, of people scrambling to exit windows and sort of feel like they need my help, so I stay and watch. Then I'd masturbate over the fire while driving away from the scene.
0: He made clear that there were sexual fantasies wrapped up in all of his fires. In a lot of cases, he set a fire because who lived in that home, who walked in and out of the door? He just saw a man walking into that house or coming out and getting the the mail, and he liked The way the man walked, he liked his build, and he wanted to interact with that man, but he couldn't do it in a normal way. And so fire was his way of sort of imposing himself on the world and and manipulating people. That man went into the house, and Tom knew that a fire was a way to, to bring him back out.
1: That was what happened one night when Sweat started that lethal fire at the home of Lou Edna Jones.
2: You're exactly right about Lou Edna Jones having a lot of grandchildren, and it was her grandson that led me back to that house later that night, only because I didn't know him personally, but saw him get the mail out of the mailbox on the front porch. He was tall and has a muscular build, and I wanted to meet him so I would live out my fantasy through fire watching him jump out of the window for help and come running to me. I raced home to watch the news and was saddened about the fatality, but was fascinated by this huge fire.
0: Tom knew from a very early age that he was different. And he knew that he had what felt like unusual sexual fantasies. As a kid, he was just fascinated with shoes.
2: I get aroused just the thought of big shoes and big patent leather boots, from childhood all the way up to even now. I always wondered why I like to masturbate over my uncle's shoes, sleep with them in his bed when he's away. My father's shoes, too. Crazy stuff, right? But no one never found out these obsession I have. I kept them hid, as you stated in your letter.
1: As Sweat grew older, his sexual obsessions evolved. Over time, he
0: started to explain to me his fascination with men in uniform, cops, firefighters, Marines. When he first brought this up, things sort of clicked for me. I felt like this was going to explain so many of the fires he set and and why he set them.
2: I kind of like the old recruiter station in Silver Springs, Maryland, because in the back of the office was a bathroom window where I could actually see inside the place. Sometimes, a recruiter or recruiters would leave the company cars unlocked at night, and I come back and sit inside and take a lot of stuff. Papers, ID cards, uniforms. I used to park on the parking lot during business hours and watch the traffic in and out, including videotaping the recruiters going and coming.
0: He would sit in his car and shoot video of it, you know, take it home and masturbate to it.
2: I must have masturbated a 100 times a day This you can't understand because these are some of the fantasy.
1: That explained why investigators had found Sweat's DNA on a Marine officer's uniform near another recruiting station.
0: He liked hanging around firehouses. He set a bus driver's car on fire because he liked the bus driver. Sometimes he would set a cop cruiser on fire just because he didn't like the cops or he didn't like how they talked to him when they came into his restaurant.
2: I felt powerful through fire when they lost their vehicles. I use fire as a source of weapon, not afraid of fire at all, for it is my friend and I miss it."
0: As he was explaining these things, I started to understand not only why he was setting them, but also sort of the breath of the fires that he set. It was not only so many house fires, it was a stunning amount of car fires too and started to realize that this guy had this kind of reign of terror that stretched back many years and touched more people than any of us had imagined. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie?
1: <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. The more Dave Jamison wrote to serial arsonist Thomas Sweat in prison, the closer they became. Sweat started to write about fires he had never been charged with. During
0: our correspondence, Tom told me about a fire he had set in the early 1980s, what he described as a fatal fire. On the morning he set that fire, and it was January 11th, 1985, and it was winter time. It was a a, a light snow that night and Tom was walking home alone after his shift. He walked past a man. They had just sort of a brief hello. And the man just piqued Tom's interest.
2: I wanted to meet him, but that would only happen through fire. So
0: Tom found himself walking home as fast as he could. He threw on some fresh clothes, and headed back to the man's house after filling a jug with gasoline. Put the jug on the front porch and and set it on fire. The fire predictably created chaos inside the house. It became a massive fire. And Tom watched this fire burn and he saw a man running out onto the porch in his underwear screaming. It took 85 firefighters almost an hour to get that
1: fire under control. Armed with the few clues Sweat provided in his letters, Jameson went looking for this fire. He knew from Sweat that a woman had died and her husband was seriously burned.
0: It was a fire he, he described as, as having a victim named Roy Peacock. I went back into the old news clips trying to find this fire that he was talking about. And what I found eventually was a fire that ran very closely to what Tom described. The man was named Roy Pickett. What Tom didn't know was that Roy Pickett had to undergo a series of surgeries and they could not save him. And he died less than two months after his wife did.
1: At the time, arson investigators determined that the fire was caused by a carelessly dropped cigarette.
0: I went trying to find, you know, the victims of this 20-some-year-old fire. I found uh, Rodney Pickett and his sister, Cheryl Lagros, and it turned out that both of them had been in the house when that fire happened.
1: They were the son and daughter of Roy Pickett,
0: I uh agreed to meet with them, kind of wanted to do, explain a lot of this in person and show them what Tom had told me. I'll never forget how I could immediately see the lifelong impacts of this fire because Cheryl, you know, still had had burn marks on her forearms from it. And she told me that it was a very hard thing for her to get through. You know, it took years for her. To cope with, and the way that it changed her life. Rodney was kind of unsettled that I was poking around on this really old fire, you know, and he he told me that that phrase "carelessly dropped cigarette" was, in his words, etched in in my memory, and he said that nobody in the house smoked. I explained that I'd had this long correspondence with the serial arsonist who got put away, and I said, I think that he very likely set that fire at your house. And so as I sat there with with Rodney and Cheryl, and we're trying to piece together whether this was definitively the fire, Bessie Mae Duncan was the woman who died in that fire. And Tom wrote in his letter to me that he went to the funeral at McGuire's Funeral Home up on Georgia Avenue. Rodney called a relative and and asked where they held the funeral for Bessie Mae Duncan, and and it was held at McGuire's funeral home. At that point, there was really no doubt that this was Tom's fire. And, um, you know, I think it was very emotional for them to see the full story. Rodney told me at the time he didn't care why Tom did what he did, but he, he took some solace in knowing that he was finally put away.
1: Dave Jamison published his article on Thomas Sweat in 2007, but it would take the authorities 11 more years to rule the deaths of Roy Pickett and Bessie Mae Duncan As homicides.
0: Tom and I had traded some, you know, 50 odd letters to one another over the course of several months. I got one of my letters returned to me by the Bureau of Prisons stating that Thomas Sweat had been placed on restricted correspondence. My letter stopped going through to him. Our correspondence was essentially cut
1: off. What did you learn from your conversations with Sweat? What was the big takeaway for you? It's a tough one
0: to answer. You know, often there are really simple reasons for why somebody might do horrific things, but what I saw with Tom is that there was really complicated psychological reasons for why he did what he did. You know, I wouldn't want to say I I sympathize with somebody who set hundreds of fires and killed several people and Continued to light fires until he was stopped. But, you know, what I came to see was that so much of what Tom did came from a sense of failure and a sense of loneliness. The root of everything he did came out of the sense of powerlessness and his belief that the only way he could impose himself on the world was to light fires. He was someone who never. Never felt right in this world, and fairly or not, never really felt loved. Did he have any remorse for what he did? (laughs) I think Tom did have some remorse for what he did, but not enough remorse to stop what he was doing. He knew in 1985 that he killed somebody, and he did not stop setting fires. I think those victims did stay in his mind, and I think he thought about them. But I think he also viewed them as sort of collateral damage in these fantasies that he had to pursue. No matter how many people would get hurt or even how many people would die, he wasn't able to stop himself.
2: God has been merciful and kind. I want to obey and keep his will. For I'm no longer worried about this life, but the life afterwards. This old mortal body will soon be no more, but the soul will go to heaven or hell. I'm glad to know God is a forgiven God, and there is no sin so great He will not forgive. Isn't that a wonderful thought? My sister in Ohio sent pictures of her house I never seen, and her yard is beautiful. She has real grass that looks like carpet, and flowers are really pretty. My mind started to think of an evil thing to do in that neighborhood. That's so sad. Those demons are still in me.
1: Dave Jamison is now a reporter for the Huffington Post. You can read his story about Thomas Sweat, Letters from an Arsonist, at WashingtonCityPaper.com. This is the final episode of Firebug. We hope you've enjoyed going on this journey with us. If you enjoyed this series, try our other podcast about the relationship between a journalist and a murderer, morally indefensible. Firebug is a production of Truth Media in partnership with Sony Music Entertainment. It was created in association with Crime Story Media. This episode of Firebug was produced by Ryan Swigert with help from Michelle Lance and W. Harry Fortuna. Ryan Sweikert is our senior producer. Story editing by Mark Smirling. Carrie Antholis, that's me, is your host and executive producer. Kevin Shepard and Alessandro Santoro are associate producers. Our archive producer is Brennan Reese. Scott Curtis is our production manager. Voice acting by Martin Fisher. Fact checking by Austin Thompson. Michael Blumenfeld did the mix. Sound design by Michael Blumenfeld and Ryan Swikert. Music by Kenny Kusiak, John Kusiak, and Marmoset. Our title track is Young Men Dead by Black Angels. And I want to leave with one last big thank you to all of you for listening.